Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Lee Irwin. He is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Religious Studies at the College of Charleston, and he specializes in comparative religions of Native North America, including Maya and Aztec, and shamanism of Asia and Siberia. Lee, thank you so much for being here. Oh, glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And so today you're here to talk to us about Black Elk. Yeah, hey, Haka Sapa. Hehaka Sapa. Amazing. But before we get into talking about him, let's talk a little bit more about you. How did you find yourself studying mysticism, comparative religion? How did you find yourself in this field? Well, mysticism was always a large part of my interest because of my own dreams and a personal experience. I would say I've had significant mystical experiences personally. And of course, the question was always how to interpret or try to understand those experiences. So that in turn led me into religion. And then I got fascinated by comparative religions and different perspectives. And then in that process, I ran across Native American material. And it just so happened that I was in graduate school at Indiana University, and they had just hired Dr. Joseph Epps Brown to teach as a visiting professor for a couple of years, Native American spirituality. So it was like one of the very few courses on the subject and probably in North America, it was very rare. And he was a really great teacher and became something of a mentor to me. And then he arranged the program to send students out to the reservations to participate in Indian life and asked me to be a mentor to those students that went out to the Northern Plains. Another group went to the Southwest. So I spent 12 weeks doing research and interacting with Native people and going to ceremonies and all this, and it made a deep impression. And I hadn't made the link to mysticism for a variety of reasons, but I certainly made the link to spirituality. And so Indian spirituality became a focal point of my interests and in the context of world religions and religious experience, dreams and visions all became central to my interests. And Native people, particularly the Northern Plains groups, value the vision and dream extremely highly in their culture and have rituals for vision quests. And that really fascinated me. And so, and as it turned out, Joseph Brown, who was my mentor, had actually lived with Black Elk before he died. Joseph was only, I guess, 19 or 20 when that happened. And when I met him, he was in his 50s. But he really knew a lot about Black Elk. And so I got sort of the inside story there. And that led me into studying his visions and experiences and dreams because my dissertation was on dreams and visions among Native Americans. So that opened the door for exploration of how those interests might fit into the larger context of comparative mysticism. That is incredible. And to have not only that first very rare course, but then to be able to follow it through with mentoring people who spent time in those communities and having those connections, that is much more hands-on than a lot of the study of mysticism can be. Yeah, that's correct. And it also forced me to rethink mysticism from the point of view of what I've come to call embodied spirituality, because this isn't mysticism as some kind of a transcendental sort of experience. It's really about embodied visionary experiences that lead to profound religious experiences, which I would call mystical, but which is uh, more marginal to the mainstream theories about mysticism, partly because, and this is an important qualifier, a lot of mysticism, like medieval mysticism, for example, is text-based. 
I mean, you're going to learn about medieval music because you read texts and learn all about their stories. There's no text with Native people. <laughs> you got to go there and you have to interact. And so the reason I, I picked Black Elk is because it has a text, uh, which Black Elk himself narrated in the 1930s. And so there was a text, but then there was the living tradition and the practices of Native people, which I was able to observe and participate in. And so I, I had both a text base and an enacted ritual first encounter, you know, hands-on sort of experience as well. That is incredible. So regular listeners to the podcast will know that we do not try to define mysticism strictly on this podcast because we don't want to limit who we can talk about and what kinds of experiences we can engage with. But a lot of listeners might be approaching mysticism through a Western Christian conception of what mysticism means. And obviously we're dealing with a completely different concept when we're dealing with a Native community. So I do think it's worth taking the time to expand a little bit. So would you mind elaborating on what you mean by this embodied experience and how it might be similar or different from the expectations we might have of mysticism? Sure. So if you look at the history of mysticism in America, not Europe and everything, but just the American history, it's been pretty profoundly informed by a Protestant reaction to and somewhat against ritual. You know, the Protestantism was always about the inner experience and like the Quaker inner light. And it divorced itself from what they used to call enthusiasm, religious enthusiasm, which was these really emotional, high-level emotional states of mind that leaned into the mystical dimension. But they kind of distanced themselves from that ecstatic emotion and also from ritual implements and symbols toward a more transcendental mysticism. And then if you carry that analysis along a little bit, then mysticism becomes this kind of spirituality divorced from embodiment and actual practices in the world, other than, say, Asian influences like meditation and prayer in the Western tradition. Okay, those are practices, so that's good, and they can result in mystical experience, but that's just not a sufficient way to talk about embodied mysticism which for Native people includes profoundly rituals, symbols, embodied action, gestures, dance, music, drumming. Okay, we're in a different context here, you know? So that means that the transcendentalist version of mysticism isn't going to really be useful in understanding Native spirituality and mysticism. And there's another problem, which is there's a hierarchical evaluation that, you know, pure spirituality is better or higher and so on. And therefore, what happens is Native spirituality gets put to the bottom of the totem pole. It's kind of like, well, that's that low-level primitive stuff, you know, and then you get Buddhist enlightenment and so on and so forth, which is very otherworldly. And then just to top it off one more step, William James comes along and writes this book on mysticism, which psychologizes mysticism and completely removes it from the religious context. I mean, he was a pro-mysticism scholar. You know, I mean, he was, he was very profoundly interested and wrote a lot of good stuff. But it also tended to divorce mysticism even more from the embodied ritual practices that would result in these states. And so when I came to Native American practices, it was kind of looked down on 
by other persons within the study of mysticism, like, oh, well, they're not really mystics. They don't have any mystical experiences, not like we have, you know, the high, perfect, transcendentalist kind of thing. Okay, that's fine. That's just, it's a bias, out and out. I mean, it's like, is there really a hierarchy structure to mystical experience? I don't think so, myself. I mean, it depends on how it works itself out in the cultural context. So I decided that in my own work with mysticism, I would just stick with Native American language and conceptualizations. They don't have a word for mystic. Actually, it's really interesting. They don't have a word for religion. So it's kind of like, okay, we have these words for prayer and for dance and song and visions, amblechia, visions, you know, but it's kind of like, we don't think like that. We don't think in terms of this hierarchy and a God in which you're above the world and all that kind of thing. So I just had to reconceptualize it. So when I teach Native spirituality, I don't use the term mysticism. I tend to use spirituality, or I might use the term vision, you know, have visions. Now, are visions mystical? I think visions are mystical. So visionary experiences should qualify as legitimate forms of mystical teaching in the context in which it's embodied spirituality. And then if you kind of flip that whole thing over, I mean, I think if you looked at the Catholic saints, you should be talking about practices and the way the body works its way into these experiences and how the body and its ritual practices support the mystical rather than the sort of psychological leap to the transcendental. I mean, you know, this is like what they call in mystical theory, contextual mysticism. How much does the context of uh, culture inform the experience? as compared to someone like Robert Foreman, who's arguing for a pure consciousness beyond any form of cultural influence, transcendental, truly transcendental. Though recently I noticed he's written a book in which he's backed up and said, well, maybe I'm not right about this. Maybe cultural influences and transcendentalism work together. So then you could kind of ask, do Native people like Black Elk have some transcendental element? That's a really hard question to answer because... What constitutes transcendence or transcendental in a native context? So Black Elk is a, sort of an archetype of really profound, what I would call religious experience, without necessarily trying to map it to any particular kind of mysticism. That's great. And I completely agree. I've never really liked the Augustinian threefold delineation between intellectual, spiritual, and corporeal revelations with the idea that intellectual revelations were obviously superior because they were less likely to be corrupted. I don't think that that's a very good reason to dismiss other kinds of revelations or think them inferior. On top of that, we also have, in the late medieval Christian context at least, a preference shown towards spontaneous visions rather than those that were cultivated, despite the number of devotional guides and works written about how to cultivate a relationship with the divine and how to ascend closer towards union. But the idea that one of these kinds of engagement is inherently inferior than the others is something that I've always thought is not really fair and kind of nonsense. Yeah, I totally agree. And when you take something like Black Elk's vision, you realize how really incredibly complex the visionary experience can really be. It's just full of profound cosmological, ontological, psychological features that sketch out a much a larger, more profound domain of experience than just pure transcendentalism. I'm not denying, by the way, that there is transcendentalism. I know there is. But why make that the high watermark? 
you know? Why not come down off that mountain and say, well, it's like different religions, different contexts produce different kinds of experiences, and they're all equally valid in their own context, which may have some transcendental element, but maybe that's not the purpose. It certainly wasn't the purpose for blackout. He wasn't trying to confirm that there was a God or something. He was given a vision spontaneously for his people. And so that puts it onto a different plane. That's the other thing I might add. Native traditions tend to be communal. They do not tend to be individual. It's not for the individual. It's almost always for the community. So how does that map into mystical teachings, for example? So it's a quite complex subject, which is good because your, your podcast explores it. An important reminder that context is important to everything always, particularly when dealing with a specific person within a specific tradition in a particular moment in time, as we always are when we're talking about individual mystics. I love also what you're saying about personal and community, because as a concept of an individual striving towards greater union and relationship with a divine, it does seem very individualistic and personal. Yet a lot of the times revelations that mystics receive are for either their community personally, their monastery, their order, their region, but also for humanity as a whole, which does make it more community focused. And it's always really interesting to me to see how those balance out within an individual mystic's life and revelations. With all of that said, we've talked a lot about mysticism, but let's talk about Black Elk. So, hey, Hakasapa, what can you tell us about his biography and experiences? Okay, so Black Elk is Lakota, which in Lakota is uh, hey, Hakasapa, Black Elk. And he's a very famous Wichasha Wakan, which is a holy man. Now, the Lakota, by the way, are in southwest South Dakota, near the Black Hills. The Black Hills is right down there in the corner of South Dakota, and off to the east a little bit is the Pine Ridge Reservation, and that is where he was born and where he spent his life, basically. And I went out to the Pine Ridge Reservation and lived there and talked to people who knew him and so on. Do we know when he was born? What kind of time period are we talking about here? Uh, they don't know exactly. I'd say post-Civil War, you know, like 1870s, maybe a little later, 1880s, something like that. And he didn't die until the 1950s. So he spans a very interesting period there. Uh, and so, um, and when he was four, he started having visions. He said the kind of things that parents would hear from their children and in a non-Indigenous context dismiss, but they didn't. In his case, he said that animals were talking to him. And he, they were like, really? What are they saying? <laughs> and he would say, they're saying the buffalo are coming from the east and they're three miles away. And they'd go out and there would be the buffalo three miles away to the east. It was like, okay, this child has got something special going on with it. And he kept having on and off experiences like that of communication with the animals, with the spirit world and so on as a child. But then when he was 12 years old, he fell into a really great sickness, and he was so sick that he couldn't move. And of course, this is teepee culture, you know. And so he's in an encampment with uh, all of his family and with Anglashka, which is the larger camp circle. And he's in his teepee, and they, they bring in a medicine man who was very famous at that time. And he looks him over, and he says, whatever this illness is this child has, it's not physical. It's spiritual. Something's going on here. I don't know what it is, but it's quite profound. So we're not going to do anything. We're just going to let it take its course. So 
He was out for quite a while. It was like a week or something like that. And he didn't seem to be conscious. And then he came back and all of a sudden, somewhat inexplicably, his illness vanished and he was fine. And of course, immediately the medicine person was caring for him said, well, what happened? Tell us what happened. And then he narrates this incredible visionary experience, starting with an out-of-body flight and then going through this long, incredible experience and eventually coming back and being told he's going to be a medicine man himself and that he's now healed from his shamanic illness. And now he needs to get his act together, more or less, and start fulfilling the vision. And to shorten that story, then he does, he goes on a vision quest. He has a second vision, which is similar to the first one. He's confirmed. He does his first healing. He's successful. He does more healings. He's more successful. And pretty soon he's becoming a recognized leader and spiritual mentor within the Lakota context and has an outstanding reputation. And then reservation life comes in. They're all moved to the reservation. They're confined to Pine Ridge. They're no longer on the horseback riding around hunting buffalo anymore. And they have to adapt to reservation life, which is really difficult, devastating, actually, culturally. And then in the 1930s, John Nyhart, who was a poet laureate of Nebraska, goes to Pine Ridge because he's writing a long poem on the Indian Wars. And he asks, who knows about this? And they say, oh, we'll talk to Black Elk because he knows lots about everything. And when he talks to Black Elk, he suddenly realizes, wait, here's a person who has not only the experience of the culture, but is also a medicine person and maybe in itself is worth interviewing. And so he interviews him. And it's a kind of interesting little story there. They're all sitting in a circle. Black Elk is sitting there with his son, Ben. Nyhart is there with his secretary, who has just learned the newest thing, stenography. And so she's taking stenographic notes while Black Elk speaks Lakota. His son, Ben, translates it into English. Nyhart translates the English into more standard English. And then the stenographer writes it down. And then she goes back and she types it up on the new machine that's just been developed, the typewriter. So in the end, we end up in the 1930s with a typed manuscript of Black Elk translated through two different translators, one Lakota and one English. But it's the manuscript, which he then takes and he writes a book called Black Elk Speaks, which is one of the most famous books ever written on Native American spirituality. And this popularizes Nyhart and Black Elk. And so the story moves on, and I'm not going to tell the whole rest of the story, but the one thing that's interesting is he converts to Catholicism completely converts. And he said, I'm of two minds. I have Lakota mind and Christian mind. I have the Catholic mind and the Lakota mind. And they're like, they talk to each other. And he didn't entirely give up doing ritual, but he pretty much abandoned it and became a Catholic evangelicalist, you know, trying to convert people to Catholicism and had a deep and profound reverence for Christ and had visions of Christ, which is interesting. I mean, he kind of crossed over the cultural line there and then he's having Christian-type visions, and that reinforced his sense of spirituality. And then along comes Joseph Brown, who goes out and meets Black Elk after he's been converted. He finds him out digging potatoes as a migrant farmer in Nebraska and lives with him for a year and gets him to tell him what the primary spiritual rituals of the Lakota are. And Joseph writes his book, The Sacred Pipe, which is another famous Lakota book, which records seven rituals, totally in the Lakota genre, pretty much uninfluenced by Catholic 
not entirely, but mostly Lakota. And then this is something people don't know about. This is off the record. Black Elk takes ground and they go up to Mount Harney, uh, which is the, the highest mountain in the Black Hills, which is the sacred creation place for the Lakota people and other Plains people. Takes them to the highest mountain, puts on uh, red long johns and uh, takes his pipe and a war bonnet and praised his spiritual powers because when he had his great vision, this is where they took him, to the top of Harney and gave him his instructions and spiritual knowledge. And he was up there thanking them for allowing him to record his visions and his experiences. Because when Brown showed up, Black Elk said to him, I've been expecting you. You're going to write a book that's going to be well-known and famous worldwide. And Brown was like, what? No, I'm only 19. I just came to visit you. He's like, no, you're going to write this book, <laughs> which he did, which was interesting. So he was a visionary, very popular. He was traditional and Catholic, which is typical for some Native people, and died when he was still very he was elderly and revered by his people and is held up today as one of the preeminent spiritual people of Lakota people. What an incredible story. We've got so much there. So there's the issue of translation, which is always a question when it comes to moving something that is visionary, spiritual, translating that into text is always a question of how to do that. But then to have it translated from Lakota into English and then into a different English and then to notes and then composed into a text. There is a question then of like, okay, how much have we lost in this process of not having the words attached to those experiences? Okay, I should have added a corollary. So in 1980s, Ray Damali, who was actually my teacher at Indiana University and for whom I worked with the Smithsonian, he got a hold of that manuscript and he shows clearly how Nyhart manipulated the story to fit into his version as compared to what Black Elk actually said. So he published a book called The Sixth Grandfather, which is the verbatim manuscript with all of the Lakota terms that he recognized in the manuscript. So we actually do have a more authentic version. And one of the disappointing things about Nyhart was the end of the book for Nyhart of Black Elk Speaks, Black Elk says, the dream died and our people failed to realize the flowering of the tree that would have been rebirth of the Lakota people. That is not what he said. Wait, what? What did Black Elk actually say and how different was it? What he actually said was the tree has been planted and will reblossom and people will come back and grow and become strong again. That wasn't Nyhart's vision. He said it's, it was like, oh, well, the Indian thing's over. No. It's coming back. And that was what Black Elk's Great Vision was about, the coming back of the Lakota and Native people coming back and reclaiming their authenticity and spirituality. So we do have a good version. <laughs> and thank goodness we do, and that that manuscript was kept and able to be studied again, because that is a profoundly different ending to the text. Yeah. There's chapters in the book that Black Elk never even said. And lots of lacunae and errors and emphasis changed, you know. So when you read the real thing, you think, wow, it's a lot more complicated and a lot more subtle than the popular book that came out. And I think the multitudes of layers of translation also affect and leave out a lot of this nuance, but also blatant bias and leaving things out and including other things. 
Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Incredible. And this conversion to Catholicism, in a way, I feel like that makes sense with what you're talking about with embodied spirituality and ritual, that Catholicism itself has a lot of ritualized practices of the faith. So bringing in these visionary practices makes total sense. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I think the Catholic tradition, unlike the Protestant tradition, is filled with ritual and ritual objects and everything. And it's interesting, too, because if you go to the Lakota Reservation, go into the Catholic Church, they have a pipe on the altar. They have Indian-made, Native-made, Lakota-made um, hangings and weavings on the wall. I mean, they've adopted symbolism and put it into the church itself and even have the Stations of the Cross with an Indian Christ. So, I mean, there was a certain amount of exchange there that happened over the time. And I think you're right. I think that helped him make the transition. It's also interesting to say, this is always a question about Brown's book. It's like the seven rites of the Lakota people. Well, there's the seven sacraments. So what happened there? <laughs> you know? We do like our special numbers. Yeah, we like our special numbers. So with this great vision, how much description do we have of the things that he saw? Do we get a lot of really intricate details? Yeah, so I'm going to be talking based on Ray DeMolly's version, you know, the real version. And it's 28 pages long. That might be one of the longest descriptions of a mystical vision experience on record. I don't really know, but that's pretty long and it's extremely detailed. So I'll just give you a few of the highlights so you get a sense of it, you know. He's laying in the teepee. He's sick. He's 12 years old. All of a sudden, he says he looks up through the teepee. He sees two men coming down from the sky to get him. The men come down. They help him get up so he gets out of his body, and they take him up through the teepee into the sky, and they show him four groups, 12 horses each. It's really specific. And the colors of the horses. And he sees these four groups of horses, and they are standing in four different directions in the sky. And in the center, where the horses are, there's a big teepee that's got a great big rainbow painted on it. This is the rainbow teepee of the grandfathers. And the two men escort him to the teepee, and he goes in, and there's five elderly men seated, one for each of the directions, so there's a northern power, you know, a southern power, eastern, western power, and a fifth, which is Skanskan. Skanskan is a very interesting native Lakota concept. It's like, if you translate it literally, it means something like the moving power of the sky, not the wind. That's a different concept. But the inherent moving dynamicism of the cosmos itself, that inner moving power. And this entity... It shows up, Shkan, or Shkanshkan, represents the fifth grandfather. And each one of the grandfathers then gives him a gift representing the direction. So the 12 horses, the color of that horse, and the gifts of each of the four directions. It's like there's a cup of water for healing with a little bow and arrow for protection. There's a peace pipe. There's a goose wing. Now, the goose wing is used in Lakota for healing. So it's a, actually a goose wing, a great goose wing. And in the south, a flowering tree, a small tree that has to be planted and cultivated so it will grow and it will flower. And it represents the heart of the nation. And then after they give him this, they say, and now we want to give you the gift of the sixth grandfather. And he sees that there's a sixth person 
sitting there and he looks at him and he realizes that it is him, only him as an old man, which he actually did live to. And so he sees himself and he says, I knew then I would live to be old and I would live to the future to try to fulfill the vision that I was being given. And then he's shown a circle and the circle has got a cross in the center, which is a traditional cosmological symbol for Lakota circle for wholeness and the two lines that cross each other for the four directions. And the one that goes from west to east is a black road. And the one that goes from south to north is a red road. And he says, you have to walk both roads in the course of your life. First, the black road, which is going to be a road of struggle, loss, suffering, a lot of problems for your people. It's going to be dark and it's going to be difficult and it's going to take all your strength to hold on to your spiritual center. And then you're going to have to walk the red road, which is from the south where the flowering tree is up to the north where the wing is that will be healing. And you have to do that in four ascents, four stages. And each one will be difficult and really challenging. But at the end, you will reach the goal of the healing of the nation, which will cause the tree to flower. So you see how much Nyhart's version violates the core of the vision. And then how will you do this? You think to yourself, how will you do it? How you will do it is beginning by starting the horse dance ceremony. And then they reveal to him all the songs that go the four directions, all the ritual actions that he has to perform, the way the horses have to be arranged, what they have to do to do the horse dance. And uh, the horse dance became a real ritual that was actually done by Lakota people and other people in the Northern Plains. And he's going to coordinate the dance and lead it. And this is going to kind of unlock his power. And then he's going to use those sacred implements to heal and to help his people overcome the great tragedy that is facing them and is about to really descend on them. Because now he's 12, so this is like 1890s, right when the reservation system was just getting really started. So there's dark times coming. But he had to hold on, so to speak, and stay anchored. And then after they show him the horse dance, they give him all the gifts. They make him repeat the songs and they repeat the gestures and the ritual performance. The two men come again and they guide him back to earth. And he comes back to the TV, sees his body laying there. He enters and when he does, there's a blessing and he's healed from his shamanic sickness. And then he wakes up. He tells him. Wow. So it's very prophetic in that it's telling him of a coming darkness, of his own mission to help heal. It's giving him very practical steps towards a specific mission rather than steps towards an ascent towards God, which we often see in mysticism. And then the rituals that are described within this vision are in themselves given specific steps, specific instructions that he then brings back out into the community with him towards this goal of healing of his people. Do we see a lasting effect of the introduction of these rituals? Do we see this kind of impact on a wider scale? I mean, it seems very focused on his role, his position as a healer, his mission, but with it being so community-faced, what impact do we see? Yeah, that's a really great question. Thank you for asking. I mean, it's really for the healing of the nation. I mean, Black Oak told Brown, who told me, <laughs> that the healing was really for all Indian people, nationally, internationally, for all indigenous people. He actually did have, toward the end of his life, a kind of global vision. 
about the significance of the healing process for indigenous peoples, but for the nation. And the grandfathers told him, they said, it's not just for you. You're being given these gifts for your people and for the healing of your nation, which is going to be suffering and go through dark times because the, you know, the four stages, the third stage, which is where they're at sort of now was really dark. I always remember what he said. He's the grandfather said, People will follow their own vision. They won't follow the vision of the nation. They won't follow the vision of the teachers. They'll all just go off in different directions following it. There'll be alcoholism. There'll be all kinds of problems. And it's going to take great effort to bring the nation back together again. And that's why you don't want to lose touch with the ritual practices and the work of integrating the community and allowing Native spirituality to revivify the spiritual practices and identity of the community so rough time and and really challenging and and yet it's directed not to his personal well-being well it's his personal well-being but not to his glorification or something but rather for the significant growth and development of this community and i will say this native people have a what i call the pragmatic test you can go on a vision quest and you can have a vision it's not going to cut it if you come back and just say i had a vision you've got to demonstrate it and your demonstration has to work because if you try to do it and it doesn't work, everyone will say, you may have had the vision, but you didn't get the power. And Black Elk had to prove this by being successful as a healer and healing people in the nation, performing rituals to bring them together to help them sustain themselves through this dark time. So it's very pragmatic. And it's not really about personal power, really. It's more about being a catalyst for communal evolution and development. And he did that well. The problem is he converted to Catholic tradition. And he said he was ambiguous. He felt like the Christian message was very profound and that love and compassion and, and uh, certain Christian virtues were highly desirable from his point of view. But what about his traditional mission? And he tried to do both, but eventually, and I remember he told Brown, he said at the end of his life, he felt maybe he had failed, that he hadn't helped his people to the degree he could have if he had just stuck with his traditional vision and not embraced Christianity. I mean, so he's a highly sensitive, intelligent, and struggling soul in this context, you know, watching the tragic descent of his people into chaos and no support. And you know, I have to say something positive there about the Christian, because then he was really loving, caring, doing healing, praying with people. I mean, he didn't stop. He just sort of switched genres there. And he was still being motivated by his vision, even in the Christian context. So it's complex, you know, but the takeaway is that it's for the people, not for him, for the community, for to sustain themselves in a terrible time. I mean, you can see his point, the idea of love and charity and community, all of these good virtues that can come out of Catholicism, if applied equally to any community, would be incredibly beneficial and therefore could contribute to this revival of Native community. Yeah, and I think also that the other thing you have to say about that vision is the old anthropological point of view would be, oh, well, it's a culture pattern. He just reproduced the cultural norms of his time, you know, spirits, directions, the symbols and so on. That's not correct. It's quite wrong, actually, because having written a book on Native traditions and spirituality, 
the vision quest is the place where creativity and discovery and innovation comes into the culture. It legitimizes. I'm going to say, well, there's no horse dance. Well, there was a horse dance, but now it's horse dance in a whole new context. Cultural survival. Okay, that wasn't normal. <laughs> that wasn't normative. So that whole black road, red road thing, that's innovative. That's developing the genre and extending the visionary tradition into the cultural historical context to help for that communal survival in a way that wasn't at all visible in earlier visionary tradition. I mean, my basic thesis is, is that visionary traditions are a fundamental access to creative transformation and creative change, and rarely do they simply recapitulate the past. They often are emergent and, as you just said, prophetic in terms of the forward direction and the innovation. So we have to get past the culture pattern idea and see it more ontologically as a creative outcome that's being put into symbols that are familiar, but with a context and direction and intention that's very contemporary and even future-oriented. Absolutely. And I always feel like when you're dealing with the symbolism and the imagery that comes forward in these kinds of revelations, they're going to be based on the context of the community. They're going to be rooted in what the person receiving these revelations already knows and understands. Because from that, the message can be constructed in a way that then can be conveyed not only to you, but to your community. And in that case, it's not just a reiteration of exact truths. Like sometimes it's an elaboration of the things that are already accepted. In some cases, it's radically different. And then it's about the community's reaction to that difference, whether it is rejected and you become a heretic or it's embraced, which it sounds like in this case, within the Native American cultures, it does seem to be something that is embraced in a way of elaborating, creating and learning more. Yeah, I think that's exactly correct. One of the things they looked at is like, do they ever reject a vision? They actually do. And the reason they do is because that which appears is so not congruent at all. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's not aliens, but it could. I remember there's this one guy, he had a vision experience in which a horse came to him and talked to him. Okay, that's okay. Horses talk to you. Okay. Bright blue with big white circles on it and red glowing eyes. And it was kind of like, I don't know. No, that's a demon horse. Yeah. Like what kind of horse is that? And he finally said, no, I didn't follow up on that vision. I, I let it go. I don't know what it was exactly, but it wasn't something. So there has to be a certain kind of congruity and fit, you know, with the visionary content. But at the same time, as you say, it leaves open the possibility for future revelation and development along lines that aren't seen by the immediate members of the community. I mean, the shamans or the, the medicine people are considered to be visionaries of the future and what they need to do and how to adapt and so on. And where does it come from? Dreams. So one of my big areas of research interest is dreams and visionary dreams specifically. And that is something that, again, when we're talking about the created hierarchy of the kinds of experience, dreams were always put very low on the list as far as the kinds of experiences one can have that are kind of beyond the self. And that's always like a question. Was this while you were awake? Was this while you were dreaming? When did you see this happen? And therefore, uh, how real do we think it was? You know, there's an interesting lack of distinction in Native cultures about waking and sleeping, or I should say waking experience and dreaming. A number of times I've asked Native people, I'll say, so you were asleep when this happened. Then they'll look at me and go, I don't know. Why is that relevant? I'm like, 
wow, they don't distinguish. The waking and sleeping thing is not the real thing. The vision is the real thing. And the vision is what matters. It doesn't matter about the state. We are preoccupied by states, you know, brain science and everything. We're all preoccupied with states and conditions and so on, which is important and valuable. But I noticed in Native culture, it was like, what matters is the vision and how it does or does not correspond to what our needs are. And that's, that's all that matters. That's great. Now, before we move on to the final question of the podcast, because this is the first episode that we've had dealing with Native American mysticism, spirituality, what is the one thing you would really emphasize with regards to how to consider Native spirituality within that specific context? I think the emphasis I would say is Native spirituality is embodied and active. It's not about transcendentalism. It's about embodied and active and communal concerns that take on highly symbolic and ritual forms that can be very provocative and transformative for the community. And that, I call that mysticism, a kind of mysticism, not lower, not higher. It's its own thing. You know, it's like if you go out in a field and you see a lot of different flowers and there are different kinds of flowers, are you going to try to tell me that one of the flowers is better than all the rest of the flowers? No. Or a certain type of flower is better than other? No. They're all intrinsically valuable important and significant, and that includes all the indigenous traditions and flowers uh, in, in the world. It does seem so strange to accept the idea of a hierarchy in comparing these kinds of revelations at all, because as you describe it, within Native cultures, the idea of receiving one of these visions is that you get something that is actionable. It is something that you can pursue and fulfill and will improve your community Whereas intellectual visions where you kind of know the nature of the divine, yes, that is new information and is valuable in its own way. But to think that one is superior to the other when they are so incredibly different, I feel like, once again, just makes no sense. Yeah, I think that's right. See, the other book I published was on Native American prophecy and all the prophetic visions, you know, coming down from above, it's called. And that book tracks a different trajectory of visionary experiences, which is accommodation to the changing world through influences from other religious traditions, not just Christian religion, but others like Baha'i, for example, coming in there and actually influencing in some ways people's reconstruction of the religion through visionary experience. But in every single case, it's adapted to the community and to the transformation of the community as a survival strategy. I mean, this is what we need to do to get it. We need to adapt, change, and get along. We can't just do the old thing anymore. It's just not going to work. So there's a strategy there, a developmental strategy that you can track through the visionary literature itself, right up into the present, actually. That is absolutely amazing. We have reached the end of the podcast and final question time, which, of course, is... Lee, why did you choose to talk about Black Elk today? What makes him your favorite mystic? Well, two things. The Black Elk narrative is complex and available for people who are interested in learning about Native tradition. And second, Nyhart's book is probably the most popular book on Native religion ever published. And so let's look at that and see what's going on there in order to sort of just disabuse readers of where the problems are, but also celebrate the incredible complexity and beauty of it. I mean, I have other records of other visionaries. I don't have any other one that's that 
complex and that complete. So it's like sort of a master text. And I'm so glad you took the opportunity to say, not only is this a very popular work that was well published, but also it's bad and wrong and biased and changed a bunch of things. And now we have the opportunity to look at the actual text and get a better understanding of what it was. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Always go back to your sources. Please remember that. Yes, that's right. This has been so much fun. Lee, thank you so much for joining me today and telling me all about Heiakasapa. I was happy to do it. And thank you all so much for listening. You can find us on Twitter or Blue Sky by searching My Favorite Mystic. And join me next time when I speak to Alicia Spencer-Hall about Christina Mirabilis.